So just as a reminder, on the heels of um, Nathaniel's prayer for another church, if you're new here, just and if, even if you're not, just wanted to remind you and all of us that we do that in part just to remind ourselves that we, it's easy to get insular, to get inward focused, and we are a family, and we're a family that wants to plant churches, God willing, make disciples and plant churches and fill, saturate this area, God willing, with um, Bible-believing, Christ-exalting, spirit-filled churches throughout this area so that the gospel becomes non-ignorable in the gallery and in Houston. Um, so that people can literally just walk to a fellowship, walk to a neighborhood parish, um, worship close by, know their neighbors, know one another, share life. But we also don't want to, we don't want to forget that we are for the kingdom of God in Christ moving forward, and we are for other churches that are doing that. And so we're all part of the same team. We all work for the same boss. And so it's easy to get competitive, but then you kind of go, wait a minute, why? Because of our flesh. And so thank you for reminding me of that, Nathaniel. As a pastor, it's easy to get out of that mindset to get focused on my flock and forget, hey, God's doing stuff all over the city, so thank you. I'm Taylor, and I'm the pastor here at Sojourn Gallery, and I'm just, this is a, a morning in particular where I'm just really glad. I'm always glad to be with you, but I really, really feel the need for this regular rhythm of grace this morning. I, feel, I need to be fed by fellowship with you. I need to be fed by worshiping God with you. I need to be fed with his body and blood, the real spiritual presence of Christ with you. I need to be fed by seeing what he has for us this morning in his word, so I've been particularly challenged by this word this morning, and I'm still wrestling through it. So I'm a bit subdued here, and um, I'm typically a pretty passionate uh, person, and I pray that comes through, but you have to preach as you are. And so I'm, I've really been challenged and subdued by this word, so we'll see what God does. Um, he's here now. There's a Aesop's Fables. Aesop is an old Greek uh, teacher, and he was one of my favorites growing up. He speaks in a way kids can understand, and I think he probably wrote his stories for, at least in part for kids. There's an old fable about a, a fro- the frog and the mouse. The frog and the mouse, some of you may have, may have heard it. And uh, he, the, so the frog and the mouse are friends, and one day the, the frog has the bright idea, hey, let's tie our legs together so we can be together forever and enjoy the, this, this close bond. And so he, without t- they play around in a field for a while, and the mouse is happy, and then the frog sees some water, and it's getting hot outside, and so he pops into the water and drags the mouse in, and the mouse can hang for a little bit, but eventually the, fro- the frog goes under for too long, and the mouse dies because he's attached, of course, to the frog. And, um, but the, the mouse, of course, floats to the surface. After he dies, he can't swim anymore, and he drags the frog up close to the surface, and then a hawk comes and grabs the, grabs the mouse and ends both, of, both the frog and the mouse thereby. And so it's a simple story, but um, it fits really well as an introduction to this text, actually, um, because it shows how there are certain freedoms that, I mean, the frog was made for certain, certain things, and he was enjoying certain freedoms that the mouse just couldn't handle. And what happened is it ended up destroying the mouse, but it also ended up destroying the frog. So it hurt him too. And that's really what Paul, in that simple story, we get what's really kind of a hard, confusing text that Paul goes on in future chapters for a large part of the rest of the letter to expand on in various ways. He's bringing up here the reality in Corinth, there in southern Greece, of idols and meat sacrifice to idols and what do you do about them as a Christian? Can you eat the meat? Where can you eat it if so? But bringing up the idea that, man, when you practice things that you know uh, are okay because you've been freed up in Christ and you have an understanding about who God is and those gods that they're sacrificing to aren't gods at all, man, if you see somebody that doesn't quite understand all that and he thinks you're worshiping gods and he gets dragged in and thinks he can too, it can literally, Paul says, you're practicing your freedom, but because you're not doing it in love, you're using your knowledge, but you're not doing it in love, thinking about how can I best love my brothers and sisters around me, you're literally 
it can end up destroying. Paul uses the word here that's the really powerful word for eternal destruction translated in other places in Paul's letters. You can literally destroy a fellow brother, he says, for whom Christ died or because of whom Jesus Christ laid his life down. So it's a serious, serious thing, um, this text, and it's really hit me hard um, because I, my stock and trade for a long time was knowledge. I mean, I've had a lot of education and was in, in some halls of education for a long time, and I've seen, uh, and, I, and I've been puffed up. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. It's convicting. I haven't always used my knowledge to edify. In fact, there's so many times when I haven't. I've done it to puff myself up instead of to promote someone else and promote the Lord. Um, so in short, we're free to love, not to flaunt our freedoms, is kind of the, what Paul is getting into here. Or you could say it another way, love trumps knowledge. Or if knowledge doesn't lead ultimately to love, then it's worthless and worse than worthless. Or love is the apex or the acme or the point of knowledge, okay? Love is the point of knowledge. And so Paul, he lands on that big time what? In chapter 13, right? That's the love chapter, man. I, I core 13. Some people refer, refer to it in shorthand as that. Let's jump into the first point that, um, at, now that we have the big picture. And again, just let me clarify just a bit before I do jump in. The scene is this. We're in Corinth and it's a pagan, classical, uh, Greek and Roman influenced city. Tons of altars and temples and pagan gods being worshiped everywhere, and Christianity is making its intrusion into this world, right? It's growing. Churches are being planted, and the knowledge of the one true God and how he wants us for himself and he's made a way to himself in Christ is being proclaimed. But it's in this city full of idols, and some of the Christian, the Corinthian Christians are, they understand that there's only one God, and so they, they're okay eating meat that's been sacrificed by these pagan priests to these false gods that aren't really gods at all, Paul says. And then after the, after the meat is taken for the sacrifice, there's leftover meat. Some of it's sold in the, in the markets. And then sometimes it's eaten at these feasts in temples. And so in short, what Paul goes on to, and we'll get more into this later, not in this sermon, but in future sermons, what he goes on to say is basically his conclusion is, again, what I said, if it doesn't, love trumps everything. If you're not using your knowledge to love, then you're doing worse than nothing at all, right? But also, you may eat meat bought in the, in the markets uh, as long as your conscience isn't offended and you know this isn't worshiping these false gods. You're worshiping the Lord. Meat is meat. Food doesn't save me. Christ does, right? Verse eight. Food doesn't make me presentable before God. Christ fulfilled all that. He does. Um, but also you may not, because of all the associations with false worship and the ways that you can really hurt a weaker brother who thinks you're actually worshiping a false god, you cannot eat meat in the temples during these feasts in these, in these pagan temples. So that's the short of it. That's the picture. Um, and they're, they're saying, hey, we know more, and so we can act in our freedoms. And he's saying, no, hang on, think about your brother or sister who's weaker, who doesn't understand as much. The damage knowledge void of love can do, or in short, this is point one, knowledge puffs up, okay? So verse 11, toward the end of the text, Paul says, again, he says this astonishing thing, and so by your knowledge, you know that there's only one God, but they don't. He says, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. They think you're okay with some syncretism, mixing in some worship of other gods, and so they get drawn into that, and before you know it, they've either left the faith or they've, their witness has been rendered absolutely ineffective, okay? Um, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. And that word he uses elsewhere 
um, one, two, three, four, five, six times in his letters. That, uh, it's, it's the word um, apolimai in the Greek to mean eternal destruction. Wow, okay? Um, so, so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. And that hits like a hammer. Hits like a hammer. Is, one of the questions is, is Paul saying that um, a genuine new creation, a child of God in Christ, can be destroyed eternally by violating his conscience and by being led astray in this way. Um, to be honest with you, I don't believe my theology and my reading of scripture tells me that, that once you are a child of God, you cannot be unmade a child of God. You cannot be eternally destroyed and lost. Man, but he's saying something very serious here, and commentators are divided. Commentators are divided. Um, what he is saying for sure is that a believer that's led to violate his conscience through perhaps something that's innocuous to one of us, to us, let's put it in our own, in our own day, in our own terms, and we'll apply some of this in a bit, can be ruined, at least in his or her witness, um, so as to stoop to, to, to worship material, to worship other gods of our age, other gods of the Corinthian age, such that he's, his witness is ruined and he is somehow destroyed, okay? Um, so, and also what Paul is saying here, this verse, verse 11, is that Christ loved the Corinthian Christians, you, me, us, he, us. He loved us. He loved the lost that he went after so much that he was willing in all of his knowledge to love to such a degree as the ultimate expression of his knowledge, he who knows all things, to be, he was willing to be destroyed, if I can say that. The eternal son of God, somehow infinity contracted to his span at a moment in time, was willing to be torn asunder, not just physically, but in his soul, to have the wrath of God poured out on him so that we could be saved. And one commentator says, the contrast is stunning. Christ gave up his life for this brother or sister. Indeed was, can I say, destroyed so they might be saved. And Christ died for this person, and yet you can't even change your diet. That hits. That hits hard. And I've been really convicted this week, even in the past 24 hours especially, of exercising freedoms that I know I'm free to do in Christ without even thinking twice about how it might hurt someone around me, whether a Christian or a non-Christian, okay? And we'll talk about some of that at the end about how it might play out differently in case to case, but to be thoughtful about these things and to know that the end of our knowledge needs to be love. I think that's the point. So the damage knowledge void of love can do. Um, he goes on to say in verse 12 that to sin against a Christian is to sin against Christ himself because Christians are Christ's body. Um, elsewhere in Acts 9, when Paul comes to, when Saul is confronted by the risen Christ, and becomes a believer, is convinced that Christ is indeed the Lord that he says he is, what does Christ say to Paul? He says, Paul, Paul, or Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus says, you're persecuting me when you persecute my church. So when we offend a, another Christian in a very serious way that leads to, how does this interpret it? I'm not sure. Their destruction, possibly even. We are doing that to Jesus Christ. He gave his life for them. Certainly we can curtail our freedoms, okay? Um, so flaunting our freedom in Christ at the expense of another is hating that person, the weaker brother, hating the body of which he or she is a member. In a sense, remember the frog in the mouse, hating ourselves even, because we're attached to that brother or sister and hating Christ himself, okay? Um, 
Knowledge without love, and after this statement, I move to point two. Knowledge without love crucified the Son of God. That's how dangerous it is. That's how deadly it is. That's how potent in a bad way it is. Point two, the point of knowledge is love. It's the apex. It's the whole point of knowing anything is to take us to the living God. If that's not the case, then it's worse than, it's worse than nil. It's worse than a zero. Um, knowledge that does, let's dig into this. Knowledge that does not lead to love leads to pride. So the knowledge puffs up, love builds up. Let's talk a little bit more about how knowledge puffs up before we get into how love builds up. Knowledge that does not lead to love leads to pride. And God resists the proud. Um, God, as far as I know, and I'm taking this off another teacher, but um, he never commends intelligence in the Bible. And I know intelligence and knowledge are, are different. We tend to conflate them. Um, and they're related, but they're distinct. He never commends intelligence. It's a gift, um, but it can often lead us, the more we know, the more we know, the more we know, and especially people that are really, really, really intelligent, a lot of times they try to get God to get to God here, um, or the more and the more and the more they know, oftentimes the farther they distance themselves from the Lord, okay? Um, and yet we tend to worship intelligence and accumulation of great knowledge in the church, especially in our reform circles, we tend to do that um, in circles that I've been in, certainly, so I'm super convicted. A pastor may know a lot of information. A Christian may know a lot, have a great, a pristine theology. And you can go to hell with a pristine theology. Um, but how does this pastor love? How do you love Christian? Is this, I've heard of pastors preaching dynamite sermons, and then they later come to Christ. They, you know, they, they weren't even saved. But man, you can preach the lights out or, or exercise your gift in the church and look like a Christian and talk like a Christian and have an awesome theology, um, but you can be mean as a snake. Your gifts may be amazing, but how's your fruit? How's your heart? How's your love? And I've known some believers, and I've been among them some, who are just mean and proud. And um, so one of my... One of my um, professors would say, man, you can know a ton about God and be mean as a snake and lost as a goose. And, um, and, and, and also, there's someone who can know very little about God, but know enough to be saved, know enough that I need God. He died for me. I'm a wicked person. He's made me clean and be a loving person. Could be a child, could be middle-aged, could be older. And that person is, Paul is saying, far more advanced in the kingdom, um, sometimes by an infinite distance and the person who's mean as a goose. Um, so that person is growing in Christ, alive in Christ. Meanwhile, the knowledgeable snake uh, or goose person uh, is getting more and more and more puffed up and removing himself farther and farther and farther from the Lord and uh, will end up in his or her proper place in hell. These are hard words. Um, that's, so that's the religious, but also with the irreligious, knowledge without love is deficient and even dangerous with the, with the non-believer. With the, with the irreligious too. Question, why does atheism tend to thrive where there's lots and lots of education, the halls of academia? Um, academia increasingly in America tends to be a hotbed for atheism and agnosticism. Um, why is that the case? Maybe it's because Christianity's nonsense and education helps people see that it's nonsense. Oh, it's hocus pocus. So the more educated I get, the more I see it's just, it's just hubbub, it's just magic. Um, it's nonsense, okay? So I'm above that now. Maybe, maybe that's the case. Um, but maybe it's because education, education gives us knowledge 
and knowledge um, tends to puff us up and make us proud. And when we get proud, uh, pride by its very nature looks down on things. And the higher it is, the more it looks down on everything. And when you begin to look down even on God, he's not God anymore. Because by definition, God is above all things, right? And God, and so that, it, that by its very nature, as we, as we know, I'm just postulating, as we learn and learn and learn and more, maybe there's a tendency, if it's not, if its trajectory isn't love, loving God, loving others, loving those who are less fortunate, who don't know as much, who don't see as much. If that's not the trajectory we're going, it is distancing us from God possibly, but also, what does the scripture say? It says God um, resists the proud. Maybe he's distancing himself from us and giving the proud man or woman over to the very thing that that man or woman loves the most. What does the proud person love the most? Nothing. For God to give you over to yourself is the worst possible thing that can happen. But that's the trajectory of pride. And so thank God that by his grace, if, that, if there were no intervention there, that would be all of our destiny, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? But that's not the end of the story. But that's what Paul's saying here. Even among Christians, this can happen. Even among people who think they're believers. And I've certainly, certainly been there. And in many ways, I'm operating in the knowledge puffs up category too often. And so I'm very convicted by this word, I have to say. Um, so look at verse three, this beautiful phrase. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. What a beautiful what a beautiful truth. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. The inverse can also be inferred. It's possible to know a lot about God and not to know God at all and for him not to know you at all. Okay, knowledge that doesn't lead to love, but it's just puffing and puffing and puffing up to know a lot about God. Take the Pharisees, for just as one example. I'll get to a more insidious one in a second. Take the Pharisees. They knew more about, about God in a sense, even though they didn't know Christ. They knew whole they knew the whole Old Testament and had massive chunks of it, some, some of them all of the Old Testament memorized. They called it the Hebrew Bible, Hebrew Scriptures. Um, their obedience was punctilious. Y'all, most, a lot of us don't even tithe. They gave far more than 10%, uh, even of their spices. Every time they would cook, you know, they would tithe out. They would apportion out even the spices, the sage, the rosemary that they used. They were punctilious in their obedience. They were punctilious in their understanding, ravenous in their, in their engorging themselves on these good truths about the living God, the oracles that he had given to the Jewish people, okay? But what did Jesus say to them? Okay, all that's knowledge, right? What did Jesus say to them? And the Father, John 5, and the Father who sent me has himself bore witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. One verse later, you search the scriptures because, he's talking about the Hebrew Bible, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. They're looking to the Bible itself to save them rather than the one to whom the Bible points. Well, what does he say? And it is they that bear witness about me, Jesus says, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus holds all knowledge. He is the very word of God. What does God know? Jesus is the incarnation of what God knows. And yet, who loves more? Who is a better expression of love, of the very perfect love of God than Jesus Christ? And here he stands before them, the reason for the scriptures, and they in their pride and knowledge that does not lead to love reject him such that they crucify him on a cross. And again, so would we be there among them and all of us are indicted with them if this was the last word, wouldn't we? Satan, I told you I'd give you a more insidious example. 
There's no more insidious than Satan. Satan, who knew more of God's created beings than Lucifer, the angel of light, the most beautiful of all of God's creation? And he knows more, in a sense, I say, than any of us ever will, okay? Knows more. Was there when God made all things, was there when Christ was crucified, pumping his fist, excited. He knows it happened, but does he know God? Of course not. Does he know in an experiential, French and Spanish both have words in other languages too, for knowing things about and then experiential knowledge. Different words, different verbs of a person, of a place. Do you know Sevilla? Conoces a Sevilla? Do you, that's the experiential. That doesn't mean do you know about it. It means have you been to southern Spain? Have you tasted? Have you heard the flamenco playing? Have you seen the orange groves? Have you smelled the bougainvillea? Have you? Okay. Satan will never fall back into the mercy of God available in Christ Jesus. Never. He knows lots about, but his knowledge has puffed him up, and he wants to be like God. He will never submit, though he is far, far, far from God. Um, the point of life is to know God, not just to know about him, and to know him is to love him and to be loved by him, to, to know him and to be known by him. Jeremiah 9, 23, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows, think experiential, think relational, think intimate, think what you were made for and knows me. Matthew 7, 21, more frightening words were never spoken, but let them brace you. Let them come in and interrogate you. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. This is Jesus speaking at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day, many will say to me, ask yourself, am I that person? If you don't ask yourself this question, it's not gonna do you any good. Many will say to me on that day, because these people weren't prepared, they were prepared to be received by God. They were surprised when he said this too, okay? Many will on that day say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. They didn't know God and they weren't known by God because their knowledge didn't lead love. They had not received, here it is, the love of God in Christ Jesus. They had been doing, doing, doing things in their own strength and being puffed and puffed and puffed up, okay? Um, there's a huge difference between gifts and fruit. Both are from the Lord, but you can operate in some serious gifts, preaching, teaching, service. Paul will go on in 1 Corinthians 13 to say, I, I can, you can give everything away. All that you have been given by God, you can give away to the poor and still be lost and go to hell if you don't do it in love. Because love is evidence of the Holy Spirit of the living God inside of you received through faith in what Christ has done for you. And love grows up in you through the person of Christ and it produces, his spirit produces all sorts of fruit, not gifts. He gives gifts, but fruit is an indication of a new creation in Christ Jesus. Knowledge is a gift, but for knowledge to lead to love, it has to pass through the nail-scarred hands of Jesus Christ. Back to this verse, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. What a tender, encouraging promise. Wow. And how do we know, uh, and how do we love God? By believing in the son that he sent to save us. 
Think about, think about this. To hate him is surely to say, to hate the one true God that Paul speaks of here and that is, that is the only God, is surely to say, no, I think I'll establish my relationship with you in some other way. I know you sent your son to be crushed in my place, thereby saying to me that he is the only way to be with you, but in my pride and my knowledge, I'm going to say, I think I'm going to try to get to you some other way. Is that not hatred? Is that not disdain of the way that God has opened in Christ Jesus to himself? I just wanna say to you, friend, flee to Christ, and if you're in Christ, flee to him again today. You don't need to be resaved, but we, our salvation works itself out by a continual refleeing to Christ and confessing and saying, man, I've been so puffed up. I've been so trying to do things in my own strength. Forgive me, spirit of the living God. Come and direct all of my knowledge to love, to pouring my life out like you did, to receiving your life in my place. How can we be sure that love is the ultimate expression of knowledge? The point of knowledge is love. How can we be sure? What's the answer to any hard theological question? Jesus. Jesus. Again, he who is, his, one of his names is he is the word. He is the articulation by God of God. God is all-knowing, all-powerful. God is the I am. He's the definition. He's the ground of being. Without him, nothing exists. There was a time past in which nothing existed but God. He has never not existed. He is ase, self-existent in the Latin And his perfect expression is Jesus, the God who came and hung on a Roman cross for you and for me. That's the perfect expression of the perfect knowledge. And to live in that by faith, to receive that, and to have that life flow in us and grow in us. That's what Paul's talking about. In a sense, it's real simple. In a sense, it's... (laughs) so profound. Yeah, that was articulate, wasn't it? Last point, we're free to love, not to flaunt. I think I changed that on the slides to we're free to forego. We're free to forego. If your freedom, let me say that in another way, if your freedom gets in the way of loving someone, don't avail yourself of it. Kind of get practical here after looking at a few things that Paul does. Look at Paul. Look at his knowledge. Look at Paul's knowledge of the one true God in Christ. Verses, verse six, right? He says, yeah, we know that those gods they sacrifice to aren't real gods, but not everybody knows that. Some Christians are still confused. Help them by loving them, not by flaunting your knowledge. Verse six, yet for us, he's saying, here's what's true. For us, there's one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. What's the point of life? Paul gives it to you right here. What's the purpose of your being, okay? It's you were made by God for God. Man, no wonder we, no wonder the things that we run after so furiously don't satisfy because Paul gives us the key here because they, we weren't made for those things. We were made to enjoy them in their proper place. But man, we run after them like we were made for them, don't we? And they always fall short. Every time, there's a sense in which every time, okay, confession, this is the stupidest thing. Every time I drink a beer, there's a sense in which, or have a bourbon or whatever it is, or, or see something beautiful. There's, a, there's part of me, the fallen part that still needs to be sanctified and redeemed. And really, that fallen part just needs to be crucified, doesn't it? Yeah, you can't, you can't put lipstick on a pig, it's still a pig. Um, 
there's part of me that's going, ah, okay, maybe this is where heaven is. <laughs> maybe this is what I'm made for. Maybe this vacation. Maybe this job. Maybe this person. Maybe this experience. There is a part of me, yes, I don't know that I've ever said it, certainly not from the pulpit, <laughs> that thinks that. And that is a lie. Paul tells us right here in a very succinct, brief, helpful, direct verse, the reason for existence. There is one God the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist. Wow, and check this out. He riffs on this and one, just think of him as unfolding a flag and he keeps unfolding it. One Lord. Who's God? There's only one Lord, it's gotta be God, right? Yes, Jesus Christ, he is Lord. He's the son of God though. Through whom, not for whom, right? Check this nuance out. Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And I've been thinking about that all week and I cannot fully get my mind around it. I just need and love to submit to it, right? But, but man, so much goodness is wrapped up in that knowledge that Paul has that has led him to salvation. And the knowledge is Jesus Christ himself. But we are made for God, that's our purpose. What does the fact that we were made through Christ tell us? It speaks somehow to an intimacy. The fact that he is the mechanism without which nothing would have been made. He, you're, there's a sense in which your being and the idea of you passed through the very Christ. He knit you together in your mother's womb. He knows you. He knows the men that stood before him that were searching for life in the scriptures that would end up crucifying him. He knows them better than they knew themselves because he knit them together. They passed through him and came into existence. This intimacy, this intimacy that we're all longing for, that's the reason we're made, it's what we're searching for, to know and to be known. It has its end and purpose in Jesus Christ. And then everything else when we find that falls into place. Everything, and Paul knows this, he knows this, and yet, is he gonna flaunt that? Is he gonna flaunt that? No, he's not gonna flaunt that. Look how he ends the passage. What does he say? Therefore, verse 13, if food makes my brother, Paul knows, Paul knows that the meat in the idols isn't sacrificed to any God. He doesn't care. It's not gonna cause him to stumble, but it might cause a weaker brother to stumble. Therefore, his conclusion is, if food makes my brother stumble, what? I will think and become a vegetarian. I'm, not only will I not eat the meat in the idols, in, in the temples, and in the market if it's been sacrificed to idols, if it helps anyone to get a little bit closer to Jesus, to know God a little more, if it is loving, I will eat carrots and get a juicer and forego meat of any kind for the rest of my life. I win all people by all, I do, I become all people, uh, I become all things to all people, I'm gonna get it right eventually, third iteration. I become all things to all people that by any means, I might win some. That's what we're seeing here. That's what we're seeing here. God, help us to be that people more. Amen? Not quite done yet. Almost. Um, got a few minutes just to, just to talk about some practical ways that that might play out. But before I do, let me just say this. This is the only place, if you look at verse 11, let me just read it. Let me look, just read it, that hammer verse. And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed the brother for whom Christ died. Paul, his knowledge is leading to love. Why? Because he has Christ in him, the one who is the ultimate expression of the perfect knowledge leading to the perfect surrender at ultimate cost to himself for you and for me. 
this, this verse right here, it's, the only, it's packed with the love of God in Christ. It's um, the only verse in the New Testament where it's said exactly, precisely, epistema verba, okay, that Christ died because of one person, of an individual. If you're in Christ, he died for you. Verse 11. He was willing to be unmade that you might be, that you might find your reason for existence in God, his Father, that he might bring you back home. He was willing to be, to have happen to him what happened to you, torn apart. Okay, and, and again, this one commentator says, and yet we're not willing to change a little bit of our lifestyle. All that Christ has done for us, and we're not willing to change a little bit to love a brother or sister or an unbeliever. Let me play, let me, let me, um, Play this out just with, let's start with alcohol, okay? Um, one thing we're not doing here is we don't wanna extrapolate this and apply it based on, okay, I don't wanna offend anyone because there could be some over-punctilious legalistic believers that are just looking for you to do things that you're per- are perfectly permitted, but they're gonna get you with the Jesus ruler, right? That's not what Paul's saying here. He's saying if, I, if anything that I'm doing might cause someone what? Not if I might offend them, if it might cause them to stumble, if it might push them away from Christ, if it might misrepresent him, I will never eat meat again. I'll never drink alcohol again. I'll never avail myself of a freedom that I can do, right? Um, It might look differently. Like with one of my friends who, uh, he wasn't really a friend at the time, he was an acquaintance and he was in the neighborhood and I just had the sense as he was having beers out on his uh, lawn uh, in the afternoons that he knew I was a pastor and he wasn't too happy about that. Um, that the pastor lived close, lived close to him because in our flesh, we're all enemies of God, aren't we? And if we're not, it's a miracle. It's something God has done. We can't take credit for it. But I just had the sense like, I'm gonna bust him out up and go have a beer with him. So that was kind of like part of my ministry, you know? It's just having beers in his front yard with him. And that kind of helped, I think, a little bit. But sometimes it's the opposite. What, the question is, what is most loving? Sometimes it's, this might cause this, per, this believer or this unbeliever. They might be looking, waiting, watching. Are you a, a wine bibber? Are you just like the rest of the world? And you might need to abstain for that reason. It's all about, is this the most loving thing? And if it is, I'm willing to do it or not do it, right? So that's just one example. And I usually get that wrong, by the way, not right. But I think in that instance, the Lord used that. Um, I think, too, when we think about applying this, we think of kids, it's easy to think about with kids. There's tons of things that we do, whether we have kids or not. Even, you know, Sojourn Kids, some of the helpers back there, they don't have children. They're, they're loving on children. We're all around them. You know that there are certain freedoms you have, things to watch. Walking across the street with impunity. <laughs> uh, alcohol or whatever it is, you know. Tons of things. We could multiply examples that we can do, that we can avail ourselves of that are not harmful to us, possibly but that children, it would harm them. They don't know enough, right? And so you curtail those gladly. You don't bring your kids into those unless you're a bad parent. And some of us have done that. But, um, and so that's what really what Paul's saying here. Just like we instinctively do with children, so we should treat the weaker brother or sister for their benefit, to bring them along. We're not gonna cause them to stumble by bringing them into something they can't understand at the time, okay? Um, clothing. There's freedom to wear all sorts of things, but some of us brothers, and I could say sisters too, but probably mainly brothers are weak. We need help, especially when it's hot out here and you don't wanna wear a lot. Thinking about what I'm putting on, you're free to put that stuff on, but guess what? Thinking about ladies, the way you dress to help weaker brothers. That's an application right there. Um, 
Not so you can get all tied up in knots because of this. That's not the point, okay? But helping to love, helping to love. Food, last, last example, um, all sorts of ways we could extrapolate this, but one easy one that I think of is if we're reaching out in this area, let's say, we have a huge Arab population. Man, if we're, if we're spending time with uh, a Muslim brother or sister, um, and we have all sorts of freedoms that we can enjoy in Christ, and, and they have all sorts of rules, subjecting yourself to those dietary rules and those rules of gesture and greeting and salutation willingly and gladly so that some of them might come to know Christ. Instead of exercising all of your freedoms and probably being a big stumbling block and then all of a sudden there's a divide, right? So that's partly what Paul's saying too. Okay, let me finish with just a picture. Um, we're, we're in a... Uh, we're in a Revelation Bible study on Wednesday mornings right now, and um, we're two lessons in, and the third one's this week. And this past Wednesday, we we finished, we talked the whole time about Revelation chapters four and five, which in a sense, Revelation's been called a micro Bible, a, a small Bible. The Bible, the whole sort of pageant of space time history happens in that book. And in chapters four and five, they're extra special because within those two chapters, the whole pageant of space-time history from start to finish unfolds in those two chapters. It's sort of a Bible shrunken down, shrink-wrapped into two chapters. And one of the many things that those chapters tell us, the first basically gives us a picture of God Almighty. He's the creator. He's made all things. He's holy. And some of his creation has gone awry. We have. But he is still has a plan for all things and he's working those things out and he's in heaven and he's governing perfectly and he's the creator God and so he's worshiped as such at the end of that chapter. You created all things for yourself and for your glory and you are worthy of worship and all creation's worshiping him except for the rebels, us. But chapter five shows the next part of the picture that takes us all the way until Christ returns which is that in steps this figure who ends up being the son of the living God, Jesus Christ himself, and he sacrifices himself for the sake of us. He looks like a lamb, but he's standing. He's got all power, but how did, he, how did he approach the throne and how did he set in play all that God had for creation? By laying all of his rights down, being trampled on and being torn apart and becoming sin for you and for me. Christ gave himself for us. And that one commentator says, what, one of the things, one of the takeaways from that chapter is this is now the way that God is going to rule the world through surrender. How does power gonna come forth? Power for the kingdom of God to be established and for God's perfect will to have its way in all the earth until, he, until Christ returns? Through his church laying down their rights just as Christ did for them because they have Christ in them and we are little Christs and we are his body. And as that happens, atomic Christ power goes forth from his church. And then he will come again once every tribe, tongue, and nation knows him, okay? And as his kingdom is built. So Paul is giving us a key to world domination here. Um, and it's a wonderful and a convicting and an encouraging word. So let me pray. Father, I thank you so much for... <laughs> I thank you, Lord, for being the only God and for never compromising your holiness for our sakes or for any, you can't do it. You're God, you're holy, you're without sin and that you became sin 
Rather than compromising, you became sin to bring us back to you. You became the bridge that was trampled on so that we could get to you. And through your death, you've given us life. Lord, I pray even this morning that we would come to you for the first time or come back to you. I pray as Christians that we would lay down the rights that we have, the knowledge that we have would serve to to help us to love you, to be loved by you, to love those that you've called us to, our neighbors, our coworkers, our family, strangers. In Jesus' name, amen.